Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Looking for a brew unique to you? Find it at Kroger. Discover distinctly different chameleon organic ground coffee with flavors like Guatemala and Dark and Handsome. They're so organic, so sustainable, and so good. Visit Kroger today to get yours. The following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world. You're going online with Bill Alexander. Good day, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM. Also at Fayette TV, Channel 77, and also streaming at italknet.com. As we broadcast live from the Phil Giannetti Motor Studios, high atop High Street in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. If you're looking for a quality pre-owned vehicle, give Chip a call. The phone number is 724-785-6800, or stop by his website, philgiannettimotors.com. Well, this week, um, we're going to be talking to a chef who's also a podcaster, and um, for most of you are familiar that a long time ago <laughs> in another radio career or podcast career, I actually co-hosted a uh, cooking podcast. But mine was a little bit different than what our guest is talking about today. But we're going to be talking to uh, Sean Boucher. And if I say the name wrong, please correct me. And we talk to the business chef. How are you doing, Sean? Excellent, Bill. Nice to have I appreciate you having me on. Did I get the last name right? You absolutely did. Okay. Most people, most people butcher it, but you did not. <laughs> no pun intended or one intended. It depends on how you want to look at it. So um, as we were talking uh, before we went on the air tonight, that uh, you are located in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, you are a, a chef out there that's also podcasting. Can you explain to me a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing in the industry? Absolutely. So I am a chef. I'm also an author, a consultant, and I host a podcast. So I, uh, my day job is that I travel around the country and I help struggling operations fix what they're doing, but I also help a lot of healthcare accounts make their food better. Um, so I'm kind of a jack of all trades in many ways, and I, I get to travel around and see a lot of different things. But you know, I, I started the podcast a couple of years ago to really, really help those people that I was consulting with really make food and make money because I saw a lot of really struggling people out there that, you know, they made great food, but they couldn't make a dime doing it. Or I saw a bunch of business people out there really capitalizing on making money in the food business, but their food just sucked. So trying to find a way to bridge the gap and okay. help people to make food make money so it sounds to me like you have a you have a uh, a basis of a reality tv program to be honest with you <laughs> yeah I've, I've heard that before <laughs> 
So how do people get in touch with you to, to, to ask for your help? Well, uh, businesschef.org is probably the best way to do that. That's where the podcast is located, but it's also got links to books and all my contact information. Or you can always reach me on social media at Chef Sean B on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Okay. And uh, what are some of the some of the reasons why people contact you is that they are making money. But like you said, the food is terrible. How would you fix that? Well, that's a great question. And a lot of it comes down to actually showing up and and seeing what the issues are, because, you know, a lot of people have a perspective that of what's wrong. But the reality is generally different than what they think it is. You know, they so a lot of it takes me going in and saying, hey, you know, this is actually what I think is wrong, even though you might think it's something else. So a lot of on the ground kind of just observing and then trying to create a plan with them to help move them forward. So is there a certain type of restaurant that you focus on? I mean, are you doing fine cuisine? Are you doing bar food? Are you, I mean, mom and pop diners? What do you work with? Well, a lot of what I'm working with right now is actually creating new concepts. So I'm working with a group, helping them create about seven different concepts from Chinese food and coffee shops all the way up into the uh, pizza and food truck space. But then I also spend a lot of time in healthcare, uh, bringing hospitals from the traditional tray line to room service Ah. so that the patients can get what they want when they want it as long as it's within their diet restrictions so those are kind of my two primary focuses at the moment so what is your training as uh, to become a chef what did you do well i got into this business by accident i thought i was taking an art course and (laughs) turned out Turned out that culinary arts didn't mean watermelon carvings and ice sculptures. Gotcha. And working 14 to 16 hours a day on your feet. So I, uh, I you know, kept with it. Uh, worked in almost every segment of the industry. From I started out in grocery stores, moved into arenas, and then into hotels, then into restaurants, and then multi-unit restaurants. And along the way, I got a few degrees, uh, got my culinary schooling underneath me, and then uh, went back and got business degrees. So basically, I've, I've got the uh, school of hard knocks through the experience and then a, a few acronyms behind my name, too. Okay. Um, so you said you're working, and, and I don't, can I say it's institutional food whenever I say hospital, or are you trying to get away from that, as you said, the tray aspect and try to go to room service? What would you do to fix that? Because they have the cafeteria style food that they, that people order from their rooms and they deliver up. Are you still doing that? Or are you looking at individual meals? Absolutely. Individual meals prepared the minute that they call. So what we'll do is we'll actually set up call centers where people can actually come or call down. Um, and once they call down, they can say, Hey, you know, I want the cheeseburger, uh, with French fries. And if that's not going to fit within their diet restrictions, we train and coach the call center staff to say, actually you can have the cheeseburger, but we would suggest a side salad with that. So it's kind of an educational piece to help people with their diets moving forward. But then once they finish ordering, they push a button and that ticket prints in the kitchen and that hamburger is made right then. And then it goes uh, to the patient specifications and then it goes up on a cart and arrives 
to their room within 45 minutes. So are you retraining the staff is what uh, are you retraining the staff to do this or are you taking um, new bringing new people in to show them how to do it? Well, most of the time we're retraining staff. A lot of times we need to hire additional staff because, you know, it doesn't take a lot of, of service to be able to just plop things on a plate and then send it down a line. It takes a lot more service and care to really make the uh, food from scratch and then go up and deliver it in a manner that people are very pleasant and welcoming. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times we have to hire additional people, but most of the time uh, when, we, when we're hired, we go in and uh, there's a team of us that really kind of, we focus on customer service, we focus on the food, we fo- a lot of times we'll redesign the kitchen to accommodate a more a la minute or, or restaurant style service uh so it's it's a big project generally takes about a year start to finish so how long have you been doing the the uh, hospital um food um consulting well since 2011 uh, i got into hospitals by accident too i had interviewed for a job with a hospital uh the the hospital offered me the job and even though i met all the preferred qualifications they offered me below the range because i didn't have quote unquote healthcare experience okay. well the company the consulting company that was hiring for them was the company i work for now so they they said well if you're not going to go work for them why don't you come work for us and i said well understand i don't have any healthcare experience and they said yeah but you know food and that's what we need to that's what we need to change so here i am almost eight years later and I've never looked back. So um, how many hospitals have you consulted for so far? Oh boy, hundreds. Um, you know, we've, I'm, I'm on a plane every week and I'm in a lot of different places. And so if I'm not helping design concepts from some of my other clients, I'm out in the, out in the field. And a lot of times I will be either at one location a week or I'll be upwards of three locations a week, just depending on the demand and the need. Because um, this past uh, summer, I had a family member that was in the hospital at one of the local hospitals in Pittsburgh. And what you're explaining to me is actually uh, what they did. You called, you ordered off a menu, told them what you wanted. They said if the dietary restriction, if they were able to do it with their restrictions, and then they would send it up with 45 minutes. And amazing to me, the family members said the food was good, which when you think about it, it's not always good, or at least it didn't used to be good um, years ago because it's it tasted all the same. No matter if it was something different, everything tasted the same. Well, yeah, I mean, hospital food has a stereotype. It has a negative connotation behind it because of the years of opening canned green beans and plopping dehydrated mashed potatoes on plates. But that's, there's a, you know, with the advent of the Food Network in the mid-1990s and the the new level of education of our clientele and, and and customers and educated public, we've we've got to up the level of quality that we're serving. Plus, if you can get people to eat the food that you're serving, they're going to get better faster. Okay. And that shortens length of stay. And, you know, that's the, that's what we're going for is really just educating people, but getting them healthier faster. Okay. And that's, that sounds pretty good. So that's where you're focusing your effort right now is with the hospital, with the hospital food. 
with hospital food, but then also in creating these new concepts, uh, because I, I firmly believe that to be a more sustainable food service uh, industry, we have to kind of think differently. So a lot of times when I design a hospital or, or I design a restaurant or just even a food truck, I try to try to build it more on the European model where we build up instead of out because space is a premium. And I try to try to use uh, appliances and tools that will actually utilize energy more efficiently. And, and so I, I'm trying to trying to make a lot of these concepts more sustainable by creating them uh, with the ideal in mind that they're more energy efficient, they take less staff to run, and in the end, we can actually serve a higher quality product. Okay. Um, so prior to work in the hospitals, what other type of um, food service were you dealing with? Well, I started in, in uh, grocery stores. I started a grocery store meat department. I, uh, I cleaned up at night, and that was about the grossest job I've ever oh, had. Oh, I can and imagine. Then, <laughs> and then I moved into arenas where I actually worked for the time the Delta Center in Salt Lake City, Utah in the late 90s um, and was able to, to work with Utah Jazz, but then also all the concerts that came through. And so I was able to cater for uh, Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and Aerosmith and uh, uh, you know a whole bunch of different clients that would come through there. So I got to learn a lot about the aspect of cooking for the rich and famous, that they're just like everyone else. Um, from there, I moved into hotels, and I learned how to run banquets, and run fine dining, and, you know, all those different things. So, uh, yeah, I, I went into multi-units from there, okay. and I, I worked worked in, uh, in fast casual as well as uh, full-service casual, and, and was able to really learn a lot about the business in all those different facets. So what is fast casual? Fast casual is, is the Chipotle's and uh, Qdoba's and, um, you know, uh, kind of the, you go up and you're able to customize your order. It's a little bit higher quality food. It's, uh, it's you know, it's you're able to, to really create kind of your meal. Okay. Um, you know, but you don't have the full service, but you have that higher quality food without that necessarily full service okay that i would have never considered that but i get i i understand because i'm familiar with chipotle and um that does make sense to me now whenever you're working with certain cuisine do you recommend say a restaurant has a signature dish do you recommend them modifying it or just keeping the way it is even though it may not be up to the expectation you may have well, really, the expectation comes from the, the consumer, okay. your customers, and and whatever their whatever their expectation is, is is really what trumps. So you know that's that's where we want to look first and foremost is food is very um, fickle. You know, people are very fickle, and dishes can be very very different whether the type of uh, cuisine you're serving or whether the area of the country you're in. And so it's it's really important to to keep those who are voting with their dollars at the highest highest pinnacle when it comes to decision making on food. If people like it and they're willing to pay for it, 
then it's a keeper. Okay. I mean, that makes sense because there's restaurants that I've been to, and there's a couple that I've been to in Albuquerque that if they put green chili on everything, it's wonderful. <laughs> that is that is kind of the, the secret to success down here. If you serve breakfast burritos and green chili, chili? you've got it. Yeah, it, it's it's quite interesting whenever you come in. And I, like I mentioned to you all the phone, my family is from there, but I grew up here back east. And it's really interesting. You go into a restaurant, you order breakfast, and you have eggs, and they ask you if you want green chili. Well, you think you're going to get a small portion of it? No, they cover everything in green chili. So it's it's quite interesting. So Yeah, you you can't get away from it here and you your bowels have to adjust <laughs> quickly or you're not going to survive. So are you seeing any new trends in the food industry of different restaurant concepts that are coming out or is everything pretty much the same? Well, the thing that I'm seeing I think more often than not is people are realizing that it's better to do three or four or five things really well then try to do a dozen things just okay okay and so you see a lot more narrow focus you see concepts that are you know uh maybe just a fried chicken concept or just a rice bowl concept they'll have variations of things from there but they you know people are starting to realize that you don't have to be everything to everyone that it's a lot better to have a smaller footprint be able to do something really well consistently than try to try to have a hundred things on your menu some of which you may or may not even be able to pull off now for example the gimmicks that restaurants are coming out right now, we, we're seeing this idea of a meatless burger. That there's two restaurants that I know of, Red Robin being one and Burger King being the other. Is there really a market out there for, for beefless burgers on a national chain? There absolutely is, because a national chain would not be rolling it out if there wasn't. Okay. Um, the, the, you know, the thing about it is, and, and we actually just talked about this recently on the podcast, was that you're seeing a lot of this in colleges and universities and kind of the millennials. Um, there's a term called flexitarians that, that has come out a few years ago, but is gaining a lot of traction now where people may not want to be labeled as vegan or vegetarian, but they want to have meatless options. And so even though they might not eat meatless all the time, they want to have those options. And, and so, yes, there, there absolutely is a need for this. We're, we're seeing, you know, where, where the burger, the burger concept has gained about 1% over the last three years. Meatless burger options have gained about 900%. Oh, really? So there's, there's definitely a market for it. And like I said, when the big boys start rolling it out, you know that there's a market for it. And I see, I would have, I would have never guessed that. Um, have, have you also seen restaurants, because I know this has become a national diet craze, this whole idea of keto diets, is there restaurants looking at modifying their menu so they can fit into that? Because I know it's mainly protein, eliminate the carbs, um, a high fat content. Are we looking at restaurants doing something like that, or are they just hoping that the consumer is able to find something on their menu that uh, they can actually eat and enjoy? 
Well, I would say probably both. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I recently went to a TGI Fridays in an airport, and one of the options that they had um, on their all-day menu was actually a an omelet covered in cheese served on a skillet, like you would serve a... Uh, like a fajita dish. Okay. And so, you know, people are modifying their, their menus to really have at least some options for those people that are doing paleo or keto or, you know, any one of the, the diets that are really popular right now out there. But they're not, they're not making their whole menu centered on that. So, you know, yeah, you, you want to cater to that crowd and you want to, you want to teach your service staff how, if someone asks that they can do that. Okay. But at the same time, you're not, you're not creating your whole market uh, around that. Around that. Um, the other thing is these gimmicks at these restaurants come out, like for example, Kentucky fried chicken came out the last few weeks with the chicken sandwich that had two glazed donuts instead of bread. Oh yeah. They test yeah, marketed I, in this area and I can't figure out why. Well, you know, that was I'll tell you why. Because that was that was a big thing uh, down south and out west. Okay. Where you were you had a lot of people serving burgers on donuts. Yes, you I've a, seen that. Uh, you know, you, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things that, that will be out there. You know, the the cronut was a big thing for a long time that it was this new novel idea and people were lined up around the corner for it. But, you know, now it's just become another product that they sell. And so, right. it's, you know, you see that kind of with any new food trend or any new food item, um, you know, going back to KFC, they, they were actually testing a meatless chicken nugget and people were lined up around the corner to try it. Well, you know, it, it, it's fun and there is a market for it, but at the same time, you're not going to have lines out the, out the door for three months. Right. You know, you're going to have it for three weeks. People are going to try it. The novelty is going to wear off and then, you know, you're going to kind of settle into where you're going to settle into. Interesting. Um, it, it, cause I, I, to me, I see it as a gimmick. I don't see it as a menu item that's sustainable, but then again, we have McDonald's that decides that they're going to bring, they're going to have an item like the McRib and only bring it back once a year. And people line up around the corner for that because it's not a regular menu item. Right. You're right. And so McDonald's has figured out, you know, that that's, that's what works. They may not be able to sell enough on a regular basis, um, but they've figured out that if they, they do it for a limited time, then there, there's a, there's a demand for it. You know, it's all, it's all very, very numbers driven. And there's a lot of detail that goes into these marketing campaigns and a lot of thought. So, you know, it's, it's not happenstance that they're just saying, Oh, well, the McRib is only available at this time of year. No, I mean, this is years of trial and error. And, you know, that's what I tell a lot of my, my uh, clients and customers, too, is that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If they're willing to put those millions of dollars into research in, in you know, what works, why not just piggyback off some of those things? If there's, you know, if Burger King's rolling out an impossible burger, you should probably have an option on the menu. Even though you might not sell a lot of it, you know, those those incremental increases can definitely help. Right. And I guess Bert, I guess McDonald's just uh, signed a deal with another company just in the last few weeks that makes a meatless burger. So it looks like they're getting into it also. 
Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, I, I think every major chain out there has always had meatless options, whether that's a garden burger or black bean burger or whatever it might be. But now with the Impossible Burgers, you're, you're getting a burger that doesn't taste like anything but meat. And so it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing because they're not marketing to to vegetarians and vegans they're marketing to meat eaters right and so it's it's a very it's a very interesting dynamic um in that it's an item for meat eaters that's meatless which doesn't make a lot of sense at first <laughs> glance but uh well but let it's me working let me ask you this how do they do that well they how do they make the product well how do they i mean do they prepare it the same way or is it prepared differently no, it's absolutely prepared the same way. You know, the the thing about these these products, just to be totally candid with you, especially as we're talking about healthcare and making food healthy and healing, these impossible burgers have a lot a lot more fat and sodium than a regular burger does. And so that's part of how they're able to make it taste very similar to a burger. Nutritionally speaking, a lot of times you're better off eating a burger. But, you know, again, it's it's the craze. It's Interesting. What people are demanding. And a lot of it doesn't go back to just nutritionally um, eating sound nutritionally. It's going back to eating more sustainably. You know, they if we can lower the amount of ground beef that we eat, then, you know, there's a lot of benefits there, too. So it's not just going after the health benefits it's also looking at a lot of other things that are important to that that class that are are buying it so these meat alternatives were they done and and again i'm just guessing here were they done for the health or a hospital setting for people to get meals that they were familiar with but that were better for them or was it just made for the public in general well, these these products that are coming out now, you know, with the Impossible Burger, the Impossible Burger was really designed to be like a burger. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they, it wasn't, I don't think it had necessarily any specific dietary or any specific uh, demographic in mind, more or less just they saw a need, this was the feedback they were getting, make it look like meat, make it taste like meat, and I'll buy it. So they said, okay, how do we do that? Let's go. Which makes a lot of sense because, um, again, it's but it's money driven. They have a a, a, a health conscious uh, market out there, especially the. I like the term used the flexitarians, because I have a niece who was a vegan for quite a few years until she started dating her boyfriend, who was not a vegan or a vegetarian, and now she's flexing back and forth because when they go out to dinner, there are places they go that she can't find an alternative on the menu. So I see where that's bouncing back and forth. Um, now, one thing I want to ask you about, and, and we've t you've answered all my other questions about the food industry, so what do you think the purpose of your new podcast is? What is the purpose? Are you trying to give it to the average person? Are you doing this for business people that are trying to get in touch with you? Or are you just doing it for the um, e educational and the informational value? 
Well, a lot of it can't stem from, like I said, my personal experience. When I was going into a lot of these places, you have chefs that don't really know how to make money, and you have business people that don't make great food. And so okay. I was trying to kind of bridge the gap there. Now, I will say that it has, has kind of transformed, has morphed a little bit or evolved over these last 100 episodes where we've really started to focus more on what are some different career options for people in the food service industry because even though it it sounds very entrepreneurial in nature there's a lot of people in our industry that may never go out and start their own restaurant or their own or food truck or whatever it might be so it's still important for them to know what their options are though you know if they want to if they want to pick up a side gig in food uh, that they don't have to do all the time. Here's some options, and let's talk to somebody who's done that. Uh, there's also other things out there where, you know, this week, for example, we had uh, a chef from the uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines on talking about being a chef on a cruise line. And so we've really tried to hone in on giving people options to make food and make money. We want to, we want, you may not ever go get your own business, but this is a way that might open your eyes as to what opportunities are out there also. Um, right now, you're listening to Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV Channel 77 as we're streaming on italknet.com. I'm talking to Sean Boucher, the business chef, as we talk about uh, what's happening in the food industry today and also talking about his podcast. Now, 10 years ago, when you were, when you were getting into this uh, consulting work, did you ever see yourself as going into, I mean, I don't want to say entertainment, but being a, a host of a program talking about this kind of stuff? Or like you said, it just happened by accident and you would have never planned anything out like this? Well, it's funny because I, I think that this opportunity kind of found me in a lot of different ways too, because I've always been told that, hey, you have a great voice for radio. And I don't know if that's because I, I don't have a face for TV or if it's because <laughs> I actually have a great voice for radio. But no, I, I kid. But, uh, but you know, it's one of those things where I, I've always kind of thought about it. Um, I had done some voiceover work here and there. And really when the opportunity presented itself, I thought, well, this is a great way to utilize some of these talents, but then also uh, be able to bring together some of the things that I'm passionate about okay. and, and really love to talk about. Um, now, you were mentioning earlier in the program, you mentioned about um, doing some work with Chinese food. What can you do to change Chinese food? Well, again, it really comes down to what does the client or customer want? You know, what what is it that is the end result? Because if the end result is a very authentic experience, okay. then we need to use a lot of really strong flavors and we need to, you know, be very true to what Chinese cuisine is all about. But if it's more about having something that's very Americanized, like Panda Express, then that's the type of conversations we have to have because those those end results are very different. But it all the road you go down all stems from those initial conversations. Now, the one thing I want to ask you, because you are in the heart of um, Tex-Mex food in that area. Why can we not get a national chain that makes good Mexican food? Because everything is so watered down, is it because the palate is different of every of each region, or is it because no one has really figured out how to do it on a national level? 
Well, I think a, there's a lot of things that go into play when you're nationalizing something. Um, you know, some of the biggest challenges are food distribution. And so okay. getting getting the ingredients that you need. Now, the challenge is, is if you don't have a big enough market, if you're, you know, if you're one or two lo- locations and you're going in somewhere and your food service distributor will only stock something if you're going to move 10 cases a week of it and no one else is going to buy it then it's going to be very hard to go into those places you know i i ran into that i was actually the the chief operating officer for a regional chain and during that time we we loved the idea of growing and being able to share our product with more people and we had a demand for it but a lot of what stopped us was that we just weren't able to get the food distribution that we needed to keep things consistent. And I, I don't think I would have ever thought about that because the last, and, and I love Mexican food, and this is why I asked, the last national chain we had that did a Mexican restaurant that was okay was Chi-Chi's, but unfortunately because of the lettuce scare and the salmonella issues that they were having, the restaurant basically folded. And we've had other restaurants that have done the same type. I mean, Chipotle's had its problems over the years. Taco Bell has had its problems over the years. But they seem to be able to overcome them, but Chi-Chi's wasn't. Well, you've got a you've got a, a bigger presence with some of these other other places. You got deeper pockets, and so they can if if your sales slump to a point where you're not profitable for six, seven, eight months, they can weather that storm. A lot of these other chains, they can't weather that storm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you've only got a uh, hundred locations nationwide or less than that, it's it's really difficult to uh, to keep justify keeping the doors open if you're losing three, four, ten, thirty thousand dollars every month. So the other question I have, and I have quite a few on my list, um, the idea of the as we called them when I used to work in construction, we called them the roach cro- the roach coaches, which are now food trucks. Where did that whole thing come from construction workers eating food out of a side of a truck to now where it's actually fashionable? Well, it's it's all cyclical, you know, everything ebbs and flows. That you know, why do bell bottoms come back? <laughs> like that, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of things with that. But I think the biggest thing was that people started to realize that, you know, hey, if I go if I go borrow a quarter of a million dollars and I open this restaurant space and I go under, I really go under. Right. But but if I go borrow forty thousand dollars and I create this food truck and and I'm able to if you know if there's not enough business for me in the location that I'm at, I can drive two miles south and have plenty of business. You know, that that makes a lot more sense from a financial perspective. So I think that's where that's where it became more feasible to to have those is you had less upfront investment costs. You also have the ability to change your surroundings. You know, they talk about location, location, location. And that's that's what food trucks are all about is getting out to those events where, where the people are. And so I think it's uh, it's a couple things. It's supply and demand. There was a demand for people to show up and provide food at these different venues. But it also became a lot more feasible to do it with a lot less money and Therefore, you got a lot more people getting into the industry because of it. So, have you done any consulting for food trucks? Absolutely, I've created a couple of them on my own. 
Um, they've been able to do a lot of work with a lot of different uh, concepts from Hawaiian to corn dogs to you name it, uh, even just soda carts. You know, there, there's a lot of a lot of ideas out there and, and people are able to get into it for a, a fairly reasonable investment. And then if it doesn't pay off or it doesn't work, they can always change the inside of that truck and change the branding on the outside of it pretty, pretty easily. But fortunately, the ones that I've worked with are, are still in business and still going strong. So are the ones you're working with in the Albuquerque area or are they in other parts of the country? Uh, different parts of the country. I've got uh, a client that I worked with on the East Coast. I've got one up in the Salt Lake City area and then uh, another one on the West Coast that actually just moved their operations from San Francisco up to Portland. So when you do that, because these are a very mobile type restaurant, do you go into the area for a few days or for a period of time, do the research and go, okay, there's a need for this. I suggest that you do this, but if you don't, this would be your next bet. You know, most of the time it's kind of the opposite where I go to, they, they call me and they say, I've got this idea. Okay. And I go out and I, I say, have you explored your competition? Have you, you know, and a lot of times they've done a lot of that due diligence ahead of time. I, I'm not, I'm pretty picky. I'll say with who I work with nowadays, because time has become much more of a valuable asset to me than money per se. And so I, I just don't want to spread myself too thin. One, because I don't want to shortchange any of my customers. But two, I just don't have the bandwidth to take on you know, too many people. Right. And so, so I really, it's, you know, when, when I work with people, they've really got a pretty good idea of what they want to do. They need things like training manuals and, and, you know, what equipment do I buy and how do I lay it out and what, uh, you know, what's the fire marshal going to let me do? What's the health department going to make me do? And, you know, I kind of help them with a lot of that. But then I also, once we get it operational, I do a lot of recipe testing for them. I do a lot of development as far as that goes. But then once we open, I'm there holding the whole crew's hand through that first week of, okay. of opening just to get them up and going. That's very interesting because I'd, I kind of assume you'd come in, here's the list of things that you need to do, and then you leave. But you are actually hands-on for the most part as you get these people up and running or as you try to help them improve what they have. Yeah, I'd say 90% of the time they come to me and they say, uh, you know, Chinese food. I, we want a Chinese concept. We want it to be like Panda Express. So I come back to them with a menu that's similar to that. Uh, I We do some recipe testing. I do all the product sourcing. I create the order guides, the training materials. Uh, a lot of times I, I show them how to interview and hire staff. I try to get their management teams with me uh, doing all that. And then, like I said, once we open, I kind of hold their hands through the process, make sure they're off to the races, and that's when I step out. That has to be difficult for you trying to find help them hire staff and help them hire chefs because you have an idea of your mind what it's going to look like, and that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to find skilled people that can actually do that right out of the gate. You actually have to train them then. Well, and a lot of times I just, I have to build concepts to the lowest common denominator, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of times they won't, they won't hire a chef or they won't hire somebody who really 
knows the business to that level. They want to hire somebody who is going to come in and manage day to day, but manage systems. They okay. want me to create the systems and they just want to be able to manage them a lot of times. But, you know, there's other circumstances too, where they want me to come in and work with the chef. And in those cases, I try to just guide those people through some of the obstacles they might find. Because to be honest with you, there's a, it's a very different skill set. Managing food service and opening a new food service business is two different skill sets. And if you've never opened a place, it's very difficult to teach someone how to do it. You really have to get three or four or a dozen of them, or if you're me, hundreds of them under your belt right. before you can really show somebody how to do it. And and it's very systemized. There's there's a step one, step two, step three. And, and I'll tell you, having, having opened everything from food trucks to casual dining restaurants to soda stands, I mean, they're there's a, a kind of a universal formula that I followed that, that that really is necessary. Now you kept men, you mentioned this a couple times. What is a soda stand? Well, those are um, those are becoming much more popular throughout the country. They're they're basically. Uh, they're basically these, you know, you go into gas stations nowadays and they've got these flavor pumps and these, yes. uh, you know, different additives. Well, these are just carts that are that are, are coming in and, you know, they come up with these creative different names. You know, you you might have a, a strawberry Mountain Dew and, a, a you know, a, a lime coconut Pepsi and, you know, just these different combinations of things. And it, it doesn't take a lot to do it, um, as you could imagine from a uh, from an equipment standpoint. But these these carts are becoming much more popular because they're they're offering things that a lot of food trucks don't. Where you know food trucks will have Coke, Sprite, Dr Pepper, Diet Coke. You right. know, it's, they're not going to get real creative. These guys are getting real creative with drinks, but they're also offering things like you know giant cookies mm-hmm. or um, pretzel twists or, you know, just different things. That's more of like a, a drink and dessert concept okay. more than anything else. So what type of limitations you have? Because if you're taking a product from Coke or Pepsi and you're going to modify it, is there any copyright issues that you have to work, worry about or trademark infringement? Well, no, because you're not, you're not necessarily, you're not branding their name. You know, it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a a coconut cola, okay. or you know something along those lines, where where you're not infringing on anything, but you're basically just providing a service that they would otherwise be doing themselves in their homes or at say, a convenience store. What's really interesting is is you you made you made the comment everything is uh, uh, circular, everything comes back around again, and when you mention that, I start thinking about the old uh, soda jerks that they had in pharmacies where the pharmacist staff or whatever would actually make flavored Cokes and beverages like that and would sell them in the, in that situation. So you're in some ways it is coming back that we're flavoring a product that already exists like they did in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, what what's good for the goose is good for the gander a lot of times. <laughs> they, you know, what worked 40, 50 years ago there's still a chance that there's a market out there for it today. That's interesting. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is this first timers cookbook 
that uh, that you wrote. Now, what is, who is the cookbook for? Well, just like it says, first timers. It is it is very very basic, um, but the whole premise behind it is how to cook versus what to cook. And so, most cookbooks out there nowadays will be a collection of recipes and. You'll go in, you'll get these collections of recipes, but when it says says things like braise, saute, mm. roast, the first-time cook doesn't always know exactly what that means. And so the first-timer's cookbook I, I wrote because a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, teach me how to cook. And I thought, well, how do I condense all this into some sort of concise, teachable material and so it's basically the principles and techniques behind cooking that will allow people to really learn how to cook not just what to cook so basically what it is is like a intro to cooking class that you would take at a local community center just showing you how to chop julienne like you said braise saute and stuff like that absolutely so um have have you have you done cooking classes for individuals or have you just done the uh, the writing standpoint of it? no uh, no the the book came because of cooking classes oh, okay doing. you know i i was a culinary instructor for a couple of years uh wrote the book kind of in the process of doing that but then uh to promote any cookbook that was a big part of promoting the book was going out and actually creating these courses and teaching them at local kitchen stores and at home shows and basically anywhere I could. Now, when you would go to these local home stores and and wherever you went to do them at, did you have people coming up to you, especially that grandmother that was correcting you what you did? (laughs) At times, at times there were definitely were, but a lot of times people were because, you know, the way I always started out was that, I I firmly believe, and I still believe this to this day, that there are two skills that we're missing in schools today that will benefit people throughout their lives. We don't teach people how to manage money, and we don't teach people how to cook. And those are two lifelong skills that almost Agreed. everybody will use yeah. in any circumstance or any setting in life. And so I would I would get up and basically preface, look, if 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 I can learn how to cook, anybody can learn how to cook. My first day on the job, I cut the tip of my finger off. I had a knife drop in my foot. I spilled hot turkey <laughs> juice on me. Like, <laughs> if I can do it, anybody can do it. And and so that kind of disarmed a lot of those would-be naysayers uh, right there. But then, you know, I, I say throughout the book that really there's not necessarily any one right or one wrong way to do something. It's more or less figuring out what works for you and then following through with it. Um, so like I said in the beginning, of, when I talked to you um, off the air, I said that I did a cooking show years ago and I worked with the chef and I was the guy that had no idea what he was doing. I can boil water, I can make toast, and I can use a microwave for the most part. When you had people come to you in the, in the book itself, is it written for someone like me? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it starts from this is how we keep things clean to this is how we get organized to, you know, let's let's just do some real basic things. You know, I, I show how to cut up vegetables, how to, you know, uh, do some really, really basic things. And, and there are some recipes included in that. And that, honestly, in the first edition was something that was missing. 
um, I kind of thought, well, if they're using this book in conjunction with their recipe books, well, they don't really need recipes. Right. Well, duh, that's the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> you know, tell people the, how to cook, but then don't give them a recipe. You know, so the the updated versions now now actually have the recipes, but we've also combined the first timers cookbook and first timers bake book into one because you know cooking and baking are so synonymous that it just made sense to have them in one volume right um these these meals that you can now order um online that they come with all the ingredients in a box they deliver to your house once a week do you see that being a trend or do you see that just as a novelty right now you know i i think it's a novelty right now but i do see it as a trend um i think that it's it's gained some traction and it it is kind of a new novel thing but i also think that that's the way we're moving as a society you know we're moving way more towards easier faster more convenient in almost everything that we do and so i do think that the 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 home meal kits and uh, home meal replacement that you see a lot of grocery stores and things doing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is absolutely here to stay. So the whole idea of having someone do it for you instead of going to the grocery store and doing it yourself, you actually see it being a way of convenience then? Yeah, I think I think that there is a, a clientele out there that wants to be able to do it. They want to okay. be able to, to make it, you know, they want to be able to customize it they they want that control but they also don't want to have to go source everything and spend all this time at the grocery store and so i I think that a lot of these companies have done their homework well enough to know exactly who they're they're targeting and what their needs are so the other question i have somewhat similar to that is when you go in the grocery store and how much stuff is already pre-boxed this prepared food that you make at home I mean, that stuff can't be good for you because of all the preservatives and everything else, but yet there's a convenient factor to it compared to actually making it from scratch. Would it be better to make it from scratch than buy it prepared because you actually have control of the ingredients in it? Oh, yeah, it, it always is. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's human nature. You know, it's funny because I'll go into these these hospitals and especially into the the retail areas the the cafeterias and things that are open to the public yeah and everybody says the same thing we want to eat healthy we want healthy options on our menu we really want to make this the most nutritious food possible but then when people go to buy things they say the same thing oh i want healthy i want nutritious but then they walk up and they go actually i want chicken tenders and tater tots and that's what i'm willing to buy and so i I think it's one of those things where we say yeah we want control we want control we want the best we want to try it we want to do it and and that's true in some cases but a lot of times after you've worked eight ten hours and you want to just get home and prepare something human nature is you're going to default to whatever's easiest and convenient and that that is true because i think about my schedule my wife's schedule and then my three kids very rarely anymore other than on the weekends do we actually sit down and eat together because we're running in different directions and just trying to find that time to be able to make a meal 
and eat together is is not as convenient as it used to be, especially when the kids were younger. Now there are I can do a little bit more than doing the water and the toast and and uh, the microwave because I do chicken, I do pork, I do steaks, I do all that. But again, that's because that's what I like to make, and to me that's easy because I can do what I need to do if I have to bread it or if I don't bread it, and I can throw it in the oven. Or my new favorite invention is an air fryer, which I always was resistant to that until all of a sudden I realized, hey, I can set a timer and I can leave. I don't have to worry about it. But again, I know what I'm putting in there because I'm doing it from the materials that I buy myself and I prepare myself. Yeah, I, I think that you, you've got a great point. I think that there's a lot of, like I said, a lot of people that that want they want that control, they want that peace of mind, but they also want to have the ability to not do that all the time. And so there, you know, there's a market for both. And so I think that's why that's why you're going to continue to see these things out there. But I don't think that they're going to overtake everything either. Okay. Um, now the other question we have, and we've talked about this in this program before, that it's so much more expensive to eat healthy than it's not, than it would be to eat whatever is pre-prepared. Why is that? Well, a lot of it is uh, government subsidies, to be honest with you. I mean, there the government subsidizes a lot of corn production and a lot of different things to, to, make, to make those raw cost of goods uh, more manageable for a lot of the big manufacturers. Okay. And if anybody thinks that the big food manufacturers don't have government officials in their pockets, they are kidding themselves. And that's unfortunate because um, what what they're preparing us is not good for us. Um, especially the big the thing a few a uh, few years back about the GMOs, the uh, genetically modified um, milk that we were talking about, and vegetables and stuff like that. And I guess there was a big enough push that there are now places that are selling only um, GMO free. Uh, products because they realize the consumers don't want that that extra um, artificial stuff in their milk, the hormones and stuff like that. So again, it's one of those situations where if unless you're not paying attention, you don't know what you're buying. Yeah, you really do have to pay attention. You really do have to get educated because most of the time you're you're hearing and you're reading and consuming marketing jargon more than anything else. Right. Um, you know, for those of us out there who think, well, I'm going to eat healthier and I'm going to I'm going to eat more sustainably by buying the Impossible Burger over the regular burger. Well, unless you're educated as to why that product's out there and the, the space that it fills, it's not healthier. And so you're you're not necessarily accomplishing your goals by doing that, what you think you're doing. So it is absolutely very imperative that people educate, educate, educate themselves so that they can be more up to speed as to what's really going on. And some of the stuff, and you just mentioned it, is is marketing to blame for that because they know that they use the proper jargon. People are going to buy it without questioning it? Well, that's their job. I mean, the, the job is to sell a product. Um, and so it's it's that's what it's about. It's about 
creating a, a message or crafting a message that will sell the product. It doesn't mean that they're being dishonest. They're just not being completely truthful. And so at the end of the day, tomato, tomato, you know, it, right. it's, it's one of those things where that's why it's just so important for us to be educated as consumers as to what the truth really is and i find that interesting because i know there was a big thing a few years ago actually longer than that um when they were talking about corn syrup and um and and the the sugar content and everything else well the thing is the corn farmers were getting subsidies from the government to do this and when people heard corn syrup they didn't think it was bad for them because they heard the word corn in front of it yeah, that's that's a great example. I mean, there, there's probably a hundred other examples out there, but yeah, that that is a great example. And it's just one of those situations where you you hear that, and again, corn isn't really good for you to begin with because it's not a vegetable; it's actually a grain. Yeah, it's it's a starch. I mean, it is it is uh, it, your body reacts to it as a starch. They, they had one heck of a marketing company. They really do. And then the other thing right now, which I think is really funny, is when you talk about butter and margarine, that now there's this plant-based margarine that, that um, a company is marketing out there. But wasn't margarine always plant-based because it was made out of corn oil or canola oil? Well, it's a, it's essentially a hydrogenated oil, which is interesting because, you know, we've we've basically put such a taboo on trans fats, but yet hydrogenated oil is trans fat. Right. And so, again, it's another one of those marketing things that you really have to kind of delve into and understand instead of just taking it at face value. Yeah. And when I and I've told the story about uh, when margarine was invented, it was actually invented to fatten up turkeys for Thanksgiving, but they realized the turkeys didn't like it and it was killing them. So they actually started marketing <laughs> it to people. And it's only like two chemicals away from plastic, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's it's just not as good, let's be honest. Oh, my wife read that a few years ago, and we've been on the butter bandwagon ever since because it's better for you. Even those are high-fat content, but if you do everything in moderation, you're in good shape. Well, and that's the key. You know, we, we as a society tend to go to extremes. Right. You know, we, we decide that... You know, we're going to lose weight, and so we're going to cut out all carbs. Well, your body's got to have carbs. Um, you know, and so there's just there's there's moderation in all things. It's figuring out, it's getting educated as to what is going to be best for you as an individual, and then creating a sustainable plan around it. And and that is that is very true, Sean. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us tonight. I know there's a time difference. Um, for me, we're getting ready to hit 11 o'clock. For you, you're what, getting ready to hit 8? Uh, uh, coming up on 9. On 9, okay. So, Oh, it's a two-hour difference now. Yeah, no worries. Uh, Albuquerque, I'm just I'm in the mountain time zone. Oh, okay. I'm a couple hours behind. Okay, because uh, I always get that confused. I have relatives that live in there, and I have a, my mother lives in Arizona, so it's trying to figure out who's where and, and uh, what time it is. But again, I appreciate you taking time <laughs> to talk with us tonight about uh, your podcast, about your consulting work, and also about the cookbook. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. And uh, if there is anything new that you have coming back out, if you'd like to join us again, please uh, let me know. We'll have you back on the show. 
Sounds great. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Sean. You have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Sean Boucher on online with Bill Alexander, and I hope you enjoyed the program tonight. Um, very interesting uh, talking to somebody about the different things going on in the food industry, especially with uh, the consulting and menu preparation and the food trucks and the industry itself and consulting work, which is kind of fun to talk about. Um, coming up in a few weeks, again, we're, we're trying to get that uh, schedule straightened out with Rocky Blyer. Hopefully that'll be happening soon when he's done with his book tour. But one once that does happen, we will let you know. But anyhow, I hear music, and it's time for us to wrap up another edition of Online with Bill Alexander with yours truly, Bill Alexander, here on WMCK.FM and also stream at italknet.com. Everybody, you have a great one. We'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. How did we become Central Ohio's most trusted team of orthopedic experts? We focus on what matters most, our patients. At Orthopedic One, we know we're only at our best when we're helping you get better. And every day, your commitment to overcoming pain and injury inspires and moves us. That's why we bring our best every day to earn your trust. Find a physician near you at orthopedicone.com. Introducing the new Chocolate Cream Cold Brew. Light, sweet, and silky chocolate cream cold foam meets bold, smooth Starbucks cold brew for a delicious way to make the most of your summer day. Your happy is here at Starbucks. Order ahead on the app. What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there. Sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.